and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. We'll jump back into Romans, pursued by God's Son. Let me pray, and I'll give you guys a bit of uh, background, and then we'll go through this passage. Do you need me to hold him? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the people that are gathered here today, God. I ask that you would make each and every one of us that the soil of our heart would be good ground so that your word can take root and flourish in us, that we would become, um, as, as the scripture says, we would become trees planted by the water and then we would bear much fruit, blessing the world around us, God. Ultimately, that's what you long for us to be is, is trees that are planted by the living water, receiving life from you, bearing much fruit and blessing people around us. Make us good ground this morning, God. And uh, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this passage, what I want you to think about is maybe what's your most important human relationships? And then in that human relationship, who pursued who first? So my wife and I, Becky, uh, we were in our early 20s, and Becky was babysitting for my sister Bonnie, who was singing right here. She was babysitting Claire, who was playing the violin and the drums. That'll let you know how long Becky and I have been married, um, roughly. And then, uh, but, but Bonnie kept saying, Becky, you really need to meet my brother. And Becky was like, eh, I just got out of a long-term relationship. I don't really need that. Um, and uh, Bonnie would come to me and say, you really need to meet the babysitter, Kurt. And I was like, eh, I just got out of a long-term relationship. I'm I'm okay, thanks. Um, and then Bonnie tricked me. She, she said, why don't you pick up Claire from Sunday school today? So I go to Sunday school and I pick up Claire and Becky is the Sunday school teacher. And I went, well, maybe I do want to meet the babysitter. Um, <laughs> And so I pursued her from there, and uh, we, it was a short, short time that we were not dating, according to Becky, um, but, uh, but I was definitely, in my mind, I was, I was pursuing her for marriage, um, and she caught on after about three months. Um, and then, uh, but, but the other question here is, what hurdles did you have to overcome to start a meaningful relationship? And, and I know for me personally, there were things that need to be dealt with in my life before I, I would have been worthy to be her husband. Um, and there are still things that God is working in my life, right? It's not a one and done thing, but there are always hurdles that you have to overcome for you to have a meaningful relationship. Um, and, and this is true with God. He is pursuing us, and there are hurdles that have to, so we have to overcome to have a meaningful relationship with him. And what I want to show you in this passage is how God has done the work to overcome those hurdles for us, right? The, the gospel of Jesus Christ and us being saved and redeemed and right with God, it's a divine accomplishment. It is not a human accomplishment. We, we cannot accomplish um, being justified and made right with God. We, we, we don't have what it takes. 
And so that's what I want to show you as we go through this passage, that God has accomplished something truly amazing for us. Now, the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, and many people read it and look at it as the most significant theological work that really anybody's ever put together, okay? It's really viewed that way. And he opens his, his letter... And he talks about the gospel, how it is God's power for salvation. And then in uh, chapter, the rest of chapter 1 and, the, and chapter 2, he talks about the judgment of the Gentile, which is non-Jewish people groups, most of us, and then the judgment of Jewish people. And then at the, and in chapter 3, he gets to the point where he reveals that no one is righteous. No one is just or upright or good before God. In fact, it says there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. That's a humbling statement, isn't it? That we have become without worth because of our approach to God. There is no one who does what is good. Um, that's in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and he's quoting two different psalms in the book of Ecclesiastes in that section. But so you come to this problem where you realize that there, there is a significant hurdle, and it has to do with who we are and what we've done. So how, how are we going to become close with God? If a righteous king is to pursue a rebel as a co-heir with his son, if he's going to make you not just a kid, but a, a, a co-heir, somebody that gets all the privileges that a son would get, if he's going to do that, what, what does he have to do? And then in the process, how is he going to retain his righteousness and justice while justifying and redeeming somebody like that? How do you take somebody that's a criminal and guilty and deserving of punishment who's rebelled against the king of the universe, how do you take them and say, I'm going to make you my child? And not just a child, but a co-heir. How would he do that? Why would he do that? We talked about why last week. Because he is love and because he loves us. That's why. But how is he going to do it? And what we tend to think very easily within the Western world is we go, well, he'll forgive us. That's no big deal. He'll forgive us. In fact, there are philosophers that would say, what's the big deal? Why, why does God have to punish his son to the point of death for us to be forgiven? Couldn't he just forgive us? Well, would he retain his justice and his righteousness if he just forgave? If, if the penalty was not paid and he just sort of swept it under, his ru under the rug, would, would, would that suffice? And the obvious answer is no, so something has to be done. And so I think when we say things like, why can't he just forgiveness, uh, forgive us, I think it, it sort of reveals a lack of reverence. Um, a lack of serious nor seriousness towards sin. And so let me read to you from Job chapter 9. He says, yes, I, I know what you've said is true, but how can a person be justified before God? If one wanted to take him to court, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. In other words, for all of the things we're guilty of, there would not be a valid excuse. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heaven, heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He makes the stars, the bear, Orion, the Pallades, and the constellations of the southern sky. 
He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. If he passed me by, I wouldn't see him. If he went by, I wouldn't recognize him. In other words, he's so beyond our comprehension that we, can't, we couldn't bring him in if he, if he stepped in front of us. And so I think when we say, why couldn't he just forgive us, it, it doesn't take the problem of sin serious. It doesn't have a reverence for God. And so when we look at this passage, Martin Luther said that it is the chief point, the very central place of the epistle, the, the, the letter to the Romans, and the whole Bible. It is the chief point of the whole Bible. Leon Morris said, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. In other words, listen up to what this has to say. So let me begin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. And so what he's drawing out is that there's a shift in his letter. He's been talking about how Gentile people, though they don't have the law of God and they aren't his people that he was working through in the Old Testament, they still have a revelation of who he is. And in the revelation of who he is, they're all guilty. They're all guilty of sin because he's revealed himself through nature. He's written their law on his hearts. He's revealed to them these things. And then the Jewish people, they're, they're even more guilty because they have the law and they've broken it. And so he says, but now. And so this but now, is, it's, a, it's a soteriological contrast. So the, the, the doctrine of salvation, he's saying we used to think it was about keeping the law. But actually what the law is given to us for is not to make us good, but to reveal that we aren't. Right? That's the point of the law. Not to make us good, but to show us that we aren't. To show us that we're broken. And so it's apart from the law that God is working. He's making us righteous, not through our ability to keep the law, but his righteousness, it's, it's been revealed, it's been shown to us that he is just and he is fair and he is upright. It's been revealed publicly and disclosed to everyone. It's, it's known to us through the Old Testament, through the law and the prophets. But the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ. Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. He's saying if you want to be right with God, it's not about how well you perform. That's good news. Because who in here performs perfectly? Put your hand down, right? <laughs> Nobody performs perfectly and yet that is God's standard, perfection. And so if none of us perform perfectly, then we're in trouble. So how can we be right with God? He says, trust Faith, be persuaded that Jesus truly is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, and have confidence in him. Be assured that he has saved you from the consequences of your sin, and make an oath to him that you're going to follow him. And in that oath, it requires fidelity that you maintain your walk with him. Now, he's maintaining his walk with you, but we can, we can stray, and he'll come get us. But faith is more than just a thought process. It's more than just an emotion. It's an action of the will. I, I believe it. I am assured by it. And I'm going to maintain fidelity to Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he's done for me. And so that's what faith is. And then he says to all who believe, that's a, it's a verb and it's present and active to rely, to put your trust in. So like right now, trust Jesus. And right now, 
trust him. And right now, rely on him, right? It's a present active verb. Keep trusting him. Keep believing that he has what's best for you. Keep maintaining that close walk with him. Keep in step with him. Believe, rely on him. Put your trust in him. So we used to think that the law would save us, but God has revealed that the law is actually there to show us what's right and to show us what's wrong. It's been revealed and and made public to us, but we found out that we couldn't keep it and that we were in trouble and we needed a savior. So how can we be right with God? We believe, we're persuaded, we're assured, and we make an oath to walk with Christ the rest of our lives. And we rely on him now, and now, and now, and now. And that's good news, because all of us have sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. But we, they they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how is he doing this? If we're broken, if all, and that means each, every, any and every, the whole, every kind of person, it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter what decade you were born in, it doesn't matter what continent you were born on, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, it doesn't matter what language you speak, none of it matters, everybody has sinned. And that means to miss the mark. The idea is like of an archery target, and, and so it's there in the back and I'm trying to hit it, but I, I keep missing. I fall short. I, I don't have the, the strength to hit it. I'm actually inferior to be able to hit and live up to God's standards. That's if I'm aiming at them at all. Most of us actually aim somewhere else. We don't aim at God's standards. We aim at something else. But even if I were to aim at his standards, I, I'm needy. I'm, I'm less than. I'm inferior to it. I'm not up to the task. And he says, everybody's that way in, as far as the glory of God is concerned. But they are justified, freely, freely justified. In other words, we are gifted the action that clears us of blame and suspicion. The, the action that causes God to say there's no longer any blame and I'm no longer suspicious of you. You're no longer under the microscope you're no longer guilty. The action that causes us to be that way is grace to us. It's given to us, though it's undeserved. And that word justified, we saw righteousness in the, in the first verses we looked at here. That's actually the same root word. And so what Paul is doing here in this passage is he's taking the same Greek root word and he's making it a noun and he's making it a verb and he's making it an adjective and he's saying this is who God is and this is what God has done and this is who he's made you, right? He's taking that same root word and reiterating it over and over again. It's given to us. And it's done through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And redemption is the the payment price to ransom another, thereby setting them free. This is another part of the gospel that can be very offensive to us, is that before we followed Jesus Christ, we were enslaved to sin, we were, we were in the dominion of darkness, ruled by Satan, the little G God of this world, and we did both the bidding of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's who we are, it's what we did. We had nothing to, we had, there was nothing we could do to overcome it. And because of it, because we were in the slave market to sin, that what we want to do is we want to be bought out of it. We want freedom, right? Nobody wants to stay a slave, we want freedom. And so how do we buy our, waves out, our way out of it? Well, I don't have the means to. Somebody else will have to pay the ransom price. Jesus did. 
That was his work on the cross, was paying the ransom price. His blood shed for you and I so that our sins would be covered, removed, taken as far as the east is from the west, and that we would be justified and made right in God's sight. And he does that through Jesus Christ. Jesus, or Yeshua in the, in the Hebrew, it means God is salvation, and Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah, which is God's anointed one. In other words, there would be one who God would select and choose to die on our behalf, the suffering servant that's revealed in the book of Isaiah. He would die on our behalf so that we would be forgiven and cleansed and made right. And what the Old Testament prophets would wonder is, who is this Messiah going to be? Jesus shows up, and it's God's son, It's God's own son. And that's why the incarnation is so important. God joining us. Now that word justified, it's a verb and it's present and it's passive. In other words, I'm not active in being justified. I'm receiving it. I'm passive in receiving salvation. There's nothing that I do right? It's all the work of Christ on our behalf. It's his grace that makes us free of blame and suspicion. It's his, it's his death. It's his blood. It's his resurrection from the dead three days later. All those things are given to us. I'm actually not involved in being justified. It's done for me. And that's when Paul gets to the rest of the chapter of Romans. He says that's why there's no room for boasting. You and I have nothing to be proud of except our Lord. And so God presented him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. The question that's sort of being answered here is how did God forgive the sins of people that lived before Christ lived and died and rose again? And he's saying that God presented Jesus, he made him available to the public at the mercy seat. And the Greek actually, it actually says mercy seat. Many of your translations will use the word propitiation, but the Greek language is that he presented him as the mercy seat. Now, if you look at Leviticus chapter 16 and other places, what you'll find out is that the mercy seat was what sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on it so that the sins of the people would be passed over, forgiven. And he's saying that we no longer look for a... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We no longer look for... We no longer look to the Old Testament rules and rituals in order to be forgiven and cleansed. We no longer look to a golden seat on top of a wooden box. We look to the person of Jesus. He has become the mercy seat. And so that's the place of propitiation. It's the means of of expiation. Two words, maybe you know, maybe you don't. Propitiation has the idea of God's wrath being satisfied so that we can be right in his sight. And, And God's wrath towards sin, his hatred of sin is righteous and good. Nobody here likes to see people hurt each other, right? And that's what God has wrath towards, the harm that we do to one another and our rejection of him. And it's also the means of expiation. Expiation has to do with the covering or washing away of sin. And he says that through faith, we can, we can experience this, we can be made right, and it's demonstrated, this was done to demonstrate God's righteousness. And, and that word demonstrate, it means a sign, a proof, or verifiable evidence. In other words, it's not a theory. 
Jesus becoming human, God becoming human and walking among us, it's not, it's not a theory. It's a historical fact that God, through the womb of a virgin, brought forth the second Adam, the second sinless man. There's only been two that ever were brought into creation sinlessly, Adam and Jesus Christ. He brought in the second man through a virgin's womb conceived by, uh, by the Holy Spirit so that a sinless man would once again walk the earth. And this sinless man, unlike Adam, maintained his sinlessness. He went without sin all the way to the point when he became it for us on the cross, taking it away from our account, putting it on his, and paying it off. And he didn't stay dead, but three days later, he rose from the dead, appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days. If you really want to know if it happened or not, don't be lazy, go do the work. Don't trust your university professor. He's got a different viewpoint on this. Do the work yourself, because it's verifiable. There is evidence that demands a verdict. And so he did this demonstration of his righteousness, his fairness, his uprightness, and he did it because he passed over in his restraint. That means forbearance to, to pause. You ever have somebody in your life do something wrong to you instead of reacting immediately, you pause? That's a good thing to do. The word clemency, we don't use it very much. It means mercy and lenience. Grace is to give you what you don't deserve. Mercy is to withhold what you do. So I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to withhold the punishment that's due to you. And he withheld it, the postponement of punishment, that's literally what the word means, so that it could be given to his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's how he's, he's working. That's how he has worked through Jesus Christ, taking away our sin, a public demonstration in time, space, and history that can be verified and he demonstrated his righteousness, his fairness, his, his uprightness through that. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. It's interesting, he repeats himself, right? God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness. Didn't he just say that? He did. He wants you to pay attention. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. He presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. That means during the era that we live in. It's specific and critical, right? That, that God's plan of salvation didn't happen by accident. He didn't go, oh no, whoops, we better figure something out. But instead, he had a plan from go. He knew that we were going to sin. He knew that we were going to rebel. He knew that we would need salvation. And at the right time, Christ died for us according to God's foreordained plan. It was specific and critical so that he would be the just and justify. Uh, word just there is a noun. It means upright, fair, equitable. The idea is that he is the judge, okay? So that's kind of what you get out of that is that God is the judge, and then the, the verb justify, to declare righteous, to vindicate, to set right, to give verdict, he is, he's the jury, and this is interesting. God is the judge. God is the jury. But he's also, he becomes the accused. He, in, in this court that we would find ourselves in at, at the end of our life, God is the judge. He is the jury. And if you're in Christ, he becomes the accused. 
The idea would be if you were standing in a court of law and you were totally guilty, and we are, before our maker, you were totally guilty, and what Christ does is he, he kind of pushes you back and he steps in front of you. I will become the accused for you. And that's what he did on the cross. He became the accused for us. And so again, we, have, we really don't have anything to do with this except to get out of the way and say thank you. Ultimately, that's what the gospel is asking you to do. Get out of the way and say thank you. Let him take the punishment for you. He already did. Why would you suffer it as well? And so he's, he's the just. He is the one who is justifying. The one who has faith in Jesus. That's who he's justifying. And this phrase is interesting. There's no verb in this clause. There's an article, you or me, and there's two nouns, faith and Jesus. The idea is that you plus faith plus Jesus equals justification. Now here's the lie that most people, wow, faith is spelled wrong. Um, that's dyslexia right there, I just caught it. Um, <laughs> did you catch it? Um, here's the idea that's going on with, with this, is most religions, what they do is they tell you faith plus works. Faith plus what you can do for God. Faith plus how much you gave. Faith plus the, the way that you do things and you could be justified. The gospel is faith plus, as Paul says, none of that, none of those dirty rags. Faith plus Jesus and you're justified. And that's the lie that every cult of Christianity spreads that, that secular humanism offers up. It's the lie that every religion says and every philosophy is that it's you plus something you do in order to be right with God. The gospel is faith plus Jesus and what he did for you and the rest of it is rubbish and you're justified. Now, that's good news, but it also says get humble. Because if I'm proud, I'm going to say I don't need him. If I'm proud, I'm going to think I bring something to the table. But if I'm humble, and as Paul said from the book of Ecclesiastes, recognize that I'm worthless, then I see my need. And if I see my need, I can see my Savior. But if I don't see my need, like Job said, he could walk right past me and I'd miss him. And that's what could happen to you this morning. He could walk right past you this morning and the offer of salvation, the freedom that's being given to you, the, the redemption, his blood that's paid for you, you could be full of pride and let him walk right past you. I would obviously implore you not to. And so when we look at this passage, we see that God has, in his pursuit of us, there was an intervention. He stepped in and he did something for us. He justified us. He made us right. He redeemed us and he paid the price that we needed paid for us. And it was a public demonstration. All of those things happened for us. I want to read to you from, uh, this is Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. A lot of times I'll try and write something. I read this and I went, I don't think I could write it any better. In one of the greatest paragraphs of the Bible, Paul rehearses some of the reasons why the coming of Jesus Christ is indeed good news. Why do we celebrate Christmas? 
because God joining us in humanity, living a sinless life, dying a death that took away our sin, it's really, really important. It's good news. In Christ, God has acted to manifest his saving righteousness, making it possible for any person who believes to be justified, pronounced innocent before the judgment seat of God himself. The verdict of this justification is possible because Christ has redeemed us from our enslavement to sin, giving himself as a sacrifice that provides atonement for all people. But what gives this paragraph its unparalleled significance is its claim that God did all this while preserving his own righteousness. In Christ, God became man and sacrificed for us. God found a way to both justify undeserving sinners and to remain just as he did so. And that's what makes the gospel different from anything else. Is that the perfect judge maintained his perfection while forgiving. How? By giving the life of his own son in our place and for our sin so that we could be redeemed and made new. I'm preaching so hard the lights are going to come off. (laughs) Uh, What I want to do now is I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 5. Um, and so if you, if you know the book of Revelation, this is the, the end of, of time, so to speak, as we know it. It's God's return and his judgment, okay? And so it says here, the lamb takes the scroll. Then I saw the right hand of the one seated on the throne, God the Father, a scroll with writing on both sides in his hand, seven se- sealed with seven seals, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. We don't even have eyes for true justice. If I, I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open it, the scroll or even to look at it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, he. Who's able to perform justice? Jesus is. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent to to all the earth. I don't have time to get in all the imagery, but bear with me. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures, which are angelic beings, and the 24 elders, which represent saints through the times, fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're all guilty, but they're all redeemed. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their numbers were countless thousands plus thousands of thousands, literally myriads of myriads and other, look, in other words, God's redemption is vast and great. You can be part of it. 
They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth and the sea and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. There's one who is able to execute justice. And in his working of what is right and just, he's redeemed you. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us with his own blood. He has become the place where we receive the forgiveness of sins and we're made right with God. And so God is pursuing you through the gospel and his son, Jesus Christ. What is your response to him? Is it faith and belief? Is it a rejection of his kindness? Is it, a, is it a prideful response of I have this on my own? What are, how are you responding to him? And I want to say that I, I recognize that this, this is an uncomfortable thing to hear. That there's something fundamentally wrong with me. That, that I've broken God's law and that I've harmed other people. Uh, that, 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 I'm, that I'm in darkness, that I'm lacking, that even if I wanted to hit the mark, I don't have the strength to do it. I, I recognize that that's, that's the part of the gospel that's offensive. But it's true. And the part of the gospel that is so great is that in our weakness, he found us. In our weakness, he came and got us. In our weakness, he rescued us. In our weakness, he loved us. In our weakness, he made us right with himself. In our weakness, instead of crushing us, he made us whole again. And he did it through what his son Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection three days later. How are you responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, I ask that, again, your word would take ground within us, that we would be good ground, that your word would take root, that your plan of salvation would be real to us, that we would recognize our need. Mentally, we would say, God, I, I don't have what it takes. Emotionally, we would say, God, I'm so burdened with, with the things that I've done wrong and the weight that I carry. And I see your son, and I recognize that he is there to remove the burden, remove the guilt, remove the shame, and ro raising from the dead to give me new life. I make an oath and a pledge. As I'm convinced of who he is and what he's done, I make an oath and a pledge to follow him. And that means you're going to be constantly changing the way that I think and the way that, the way that I process my emotions and the way that I look at the world around me and the, the way that I live. Because though you love me broken, you don't leave me broken.
We thank you for this great message, this message of salvation. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.